Hey, everybody. Hello and welcome to a podcast super show. We've got five folks represented here between book author and podcasters and just a, a bunch of crazy movie people who love movies, love to talk about movies and maybe a little little friendly debate on movies. Today, we are here to discuss and debate which year from the 80s is the best for movies. I am going to be moderating this one. I am John Reed. I am the host of the 30-something movie podcast. We do movies that are hitting their 30th anniversary. So this year, being 2023, we are in 1993. We've been doing some fun stuff with Jurassic Park, Groundhog Day, Fugitive, one of my personal favorites, Demolition Man. Tons of fun stuff. So we are over there at the at the 30-something movie podcast. I am going to kick it first over to Dayton. Dayton, tell us a little bit about your podcast, and you are representing the year 1981. So tell us about yourself and tell us what was fun about 81. Yes. Hi. Thank you, John. I am Dayton Johnson. I am the host of the Docking Bay 77 podcast. What we do is we talk, obviously, movies, music. We cover some comic books, some books, and we recently did two episodes on Ready Player One, the movie, and the book. I am lucky and blessed to have a lot of friends who like to nerd out about such things. And everybody on this current episode have either been on or will soon be on John on the podcast. So thank you to everybody there. 81 is important because that was right when I started going to the movies alone without the parents or whatever. And I just have very fond memories of that. And also it was the year my wife was born. So that is another reason why it's my favorite year for movies. So there you go. And we've got Dave. He is representing 1984. Dave, you've got a couple of different projects that you have worked on and in the works. So why don't you tell us a little bit about you and 1984? Okay. Well, I'm the only one here that doesn't actually have a podcast of his own, yeah. but I do have a YouTube channel where I talk about American soccer. I do short form content designed for the new fan or the curious fan. If you're not anti-soccer, you don't hate it, but you just don't have a way in. I could I simplify that for everybody. So for new and curious fans, short form content is on YouTube. It's called American Soccer Quick Kicks. I'm having a lot of fun with that and it's gaining some traction. I'm also the author of the epic sword and sorcery fantasy series of novels called Galahad's Doom. Very excited about that because I actually the third volume of that just came out earlier this year and I'm very pleased with how it turned out. So galahadsdoom.com and check out my books. Excellent. Jeff, you got the fix for 1986. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your podcast and what you love about 1986? Thank you, John. I am Jeff Johnson, co-host of A Film by Podcast. That's where we like to wax intellectual about our favorite directors, their underrated hits, and what we love most about them. In between, we have found the time to do a couple fun limited series, the first of which was one called 1986, which was all about celebrating the movies of 1986 to determine whether or not 86 was, in fact, the best year for cinema in the 80s. And after several people had a strong opinion, we find ourselves here today. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say anything about 1984. Let me say this. Yeah. yeah. I'm willing to entertain debate on if it was the best year for movies, although it's definitely a contender. And honestly, I think we have the four best years of the decade represented here. But when you take everything, all aspects of pop culture all together and consider what was the best pop culture year. So movies, music, TV shows, books, comics, everything. I think 1984 is the clear runaway winner when you take it all into consideration. Even though the McRib came out in 81? <laughs> See, like I said. I'm already detecting bias, but I'm going to no. let it go. <laughs> and then Jason. Jason is bringing us up here at the end of the decade. 1989 was definitely fine. Jason, tell us a little bit about your podcast and in 1989. 
So my name is Jason Colvin. My best buddy, Mr. James D. Graves, and I do a podcast called the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We match up movies against each other or music against each other. So we have done Raiders of the Lost Ark. We actually matched that up with Back to the Future from 85. We've done The Terminator from 84. We matched that up with Alien. Just recently, we did Cinderella's Long Cold Winter. We're doing that against Van Halen's OU812. So we take two different projects. We match them up. We compare them. And then we kind of decide a winner. So talking with you guys, my good friends, I started to make a case for 1989. And I heard objection, Your Honor, 1984 and 86 and 81. And so we're here today to talk about those. I love 1989 to me because it closes out the decade. To me, it's the most 80s of the 80s years. And so 89 is my personal favorite year. So I'll be interested to see where we go and and what kind of fun we can have with this. Excellent. Well, so our first segment that we've got here, Jason, I think you've got some numbers for us. You're going to start off with a little little math. It was my understanding there would be no math on this podcast. (laughs) I love it. Box office. Yeah, that's right. Just right out of the gate, we want to go ahead and get these box office numbers out there because facts are facts, right? So this is really not something we can argue, but let's just throw this out there and we can talk about what these numbers mean and and the impact of these. But here is a list of the top 15 at the worldwide box office by movie. Okay. So number 15 overall is Honey, I Shrunk the Kids from 1989. Number 14 overall is Lethal Weapon 2 from 1989. Number 13 is Ghostbusters from 1984. Number 12 is Beverly Hills Cop, 1984. Number 11 is Dead Poet Society from 1989. 10 overall is Crocodile Dundee 2 from 1988. Number 9 is Return of the Jedi from 83. Number 8 is Coming to America at 1988. Number 7 is Look Who's Talking from 89. Number 6 is Roger Rabbit in 1988. 5 overall is Back to the Future 2 from 89. Rain Man from 88. Number three overall is Batman from 89. Number two overall is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade from 1989. And then number one, of course, is E.T. from 1982. So curious list right there. If it pleases the moderator, I I suggest that this this last bit of information be stricken from the record. (laughs) I I kept hearing 89, 89, 89. He mentioned 89 way too often in the guise of being objective. Well, let's move on to our next part. Our next part, we're going to spend a little bit more time in here, and each person is going to get their opportunity to talk about kind of the pop culture impact. Pop culture impact. What have you got, Dayton, in terms of how this impacted the culture? I selected a few movies from my year to point out that without these, the other years miss out on some of their more iconic films. So first we're starting off with the film An American Werewolf in London. One of the first early horror films I truly enjoyed because it also had that nice tinge of comedy and it is definitely frightening for sure, but it also made you laugh at the same time. So that's very cool. So I do have two major pop culture impacts with this one feature film. First, It was the film that inspired a very young Edgar Wright to become a filmmaker, giving us classics like Shaun of the Dead and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and Baby Driver as well. So that's the first one that was a movie he saw. I said, you know what? This is cool. Movies can be two things, not just a horror film, but it can also be a comedy at the same time. Without that, maybe we don't get the Edgar Wright that we have today. Second, without the success of this movie, we do not get the video for Michael Jackson's Thriller. Same director, same visual effects. So no American Werewolf in London. We do not get that music video or short film as it truly should be called. 
I'll jump in there too and say it has the greatest cut to credits of almost yes. any movie I've ever seen. I absolutely <laughs> love how it cuts to the credits at the end of that movie. My next film isn't exactly a great movie. In fact, it's kind of a throwaway, but it is something that I believe Jeff has talked about and it's Prana 2, The Spawning. So yes, sir. Jason knows about this too. So I know later he kind of denied it, but James Cameron was hired and was working on this film and basically starving because he wasn't getting paid anything and has a fever dream about a cyborg that is chasing him and he cannot kill it. He cannot get away from it, which of course inspired the screenplay for the Terminator. So without that fever dream that he has while making this terrible movie, we don't get the Terminator, which means we don't get his version of Aliens, which means we don't get T2 or the Abyss and things like that. Like I said, it's kind of a throwaway movie, but it has a major impact on feature films that come afterwards for sure. Another one from 81 is both the directorial debut of Lawrence Kasdan and also the feature film debut of Kathleen Turner, and that's Body Heat. Now, the movie is quite good. Kathleen Turner is just super sexy like she was all through the 80s, and it pretty much launched her career. And without the success of this movie, we don't get her in Romancing the Stone. Now, I did see the other people that were in mind for that. It's not the same without Kathleen Turner. So without Kathleen Turner being in the Ranting Stone, it's not successful. And then Zemeckis does not get to make Back to the Future. And also, he enjoyed working with her enough that he did cast her in a voice for, of course, Who Framed Roger Rabbit as Jessica Rabbit. Now, with the success of Body Heat, we also solidify Kasdan as a writer-director, leading to later films like The Big Chill, Silverado, The Accidental Tourist, and Grand Canyon. And I don't know if you know, Dayton, but adjusted for inflation, Body Heat had, I want to say, something like four tons of sweat in that movie. <laughs> yes, that's, that tracks. I, I'm that not good enough, but very sweaty. Yes. yes, it is. Okay, this one's for Jeff. Escape from New York, the first feature film collaboration between John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. The success of the movie, however, wasn't a huge box office success, but did have quite a cult following. It helped Russell get away from his Disney movie roots and led to, of course, many Carpenter-Russell films like The Thing and, of course, Big Trouble in Little China from 1986. So, no Escape from New York we probably don't get the thing or the big trouble with China, at least not at this point. And Russell, for as his age, he's still having a very good career. He actually is a great Santa Claus. I will say that. Yeah, he is. That's good. And then one more I'm just going to throw out here real quick. Stripes. That's the fact, Jack. That's the fact, Jack. Without the success of Stripes, we don't get Ghostbusters. Sorry, Def Dave, that doesn't happen without the success of that movie. It was They were pretty much trying to use the same cast again, same writer, whatever, but no stripes, no Ghostbusters. And I will save the rest Day. of mine for my wild card, so there you go. Probably no Groundhog Day either, right? Probably not, Probably right? Not. I can I can just see the look in Dave's eyes because he's up next to talk about 1984. And it's it's the kind of look that's like a, a Sam Jackson saying, oh, oh, you were finished? Well, allow me to retort. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, you're so, up. Okay, I'll take it. 1984 it was a massive year for pop culture impact. So first of all, at the top of my list, I have this was the year that was the star-making turn for Eddie Murphy. This shot Eddie Murphy into the stratosphere, made him a superstar, made him the highest paid actors in the decade, top box office draw. The Eddie Murphy, the superstar that we know, is the legacy of 1984. You're welcome. The other thing is that there's something that happened with the movie industry in 1984 that changed the movie industry forever. It left a permanent change on how movies are rated. This was the year of the invention of the PG-13 rating. It was Gremlins and Temple of Doom that both came out in 84. And before the year was over, we had three PG-13 movies. The first one to come out was Red Dawn, 
followed by Dreamscape. I found out today, thanks to the All Ladies Movie Podcast on Twitter, that Flamingo Kid was actually the first PG-13 movie made, but it wasn't released until after those other two. So PG-13 comes from 1984, and there's no denying that that was a permanent impact that still it's it's still with us today. 1984 also gave the world the phrase electric boogaloo. This is <laughs> the perfect all-purpose sequel subtitle. You can add it onto anything and it works. Electric boogaloo. What would our lives be like without that magical phrase? And also... 1984 gave the world Freddy Krueger, one of the biggest icons in cinema history. You're welcome. (laughs) This was also the year, and you can say this about music too, there's a lot of career-defining albums in 1984, but this was a year of career-defining movies for a lot of people. Just right off the top, like I said, first of all, Beverly Hills Cop, a career-defining movie for Eddie Murphy. Romancing the Stone was a career-defining movie for Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, and Robert Zemeckis. Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis on Romancing the Stone, if that doesn't work, we don't get Back to the Future or Back to the Future Part 2 from 1989. So <laughs> the, this is also the career-defining year for Prince with Purple Rain, and he had the Triple Crown with with the album, the singles, and the movie. This was a year that Prince owned. And of course, the Terminator. Also, we had Arnold Schwarzenegger with the career-defining role in 1984 with the Terminator. So those are huge, massive, permanent impacts that nobody can deny. Then we have also, a thing I like about 1984 is the variety of fare. Like There was just a lot of variety. What I look at, I haven't compared this to the top 10s of the other years here represented. But I'll look at the top 10 that I just listed real quick, top of the show for 1984. And out of the 10, eight of them are not sequels. Like there's only two sequels in the top 10. And there are overall very few sequels, comparably speaking, for the year. This was a lot of original ideas being introduced. And to that end, we had a lot of franchises introduced, a lot of what proved to be first movies in a series or some enduring franchises. Things that I would consider a little bit lesser, like Children of the Corn, Revenge of the Nerds, they all started in 84. Police Academy had a movie every year for about six or seven years. Ghostbusters has developed into this huge fandom, this this huge fan culture surrounding it. And it's a franchise that continues today. Karate Kid, still going strong with Cobra Kai and everything. And of course, Nightmare on Elm Street. All of these things came out of the original ideas from 1984. And speaking again to the variety of the fair, it was a big year for comedies. When you consider that Ghostbusters set the box office record all time for a comedy, and it was only broken by Beverly Hills Cop, which also came out before 1984 was over. And it became the highest grossing comedy and it held that title for years. It was a huge year for horror, which I'm going to touch on a little bit later in the show. It was also a massive year for sci-fi and sci-fi and fantasy. For genre geeks like me, you can't beat 1984 for the sheer quantity of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror movies that came out, and I'll be talking about them later. So anyway, that's the pop culture impact of 1984. Good luck, everybody else. I, I do want to, after you mention it, I, I do want to just hold up and, and give proof that I do own Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> both of those breaking movies, both released in 1984. Excuse me, there were three breakdance movies out in 1984. <laughs> and I will be talking about them later. <laughs> Excuse me, Your Honor. <laughs> 
Jeff, you've got 86. Tell us a little bit about the impact of 86. Well, Def Dave, respectfully, I don't need luck when I've got talent. Let me tell you about 1986. <laughs> and, and John, I know you're keeping score, so I'm not going to wow you with a bunch of cinema facts about this year. The impact on popular culture I'm going to talk about that happened in 1986. And I'm going to do it one with just one movie. A lot of great films in 86. I'm just going to use Top Gun to talk about how popular culture was impacted massively across the board in 1986. Real easy. Everyone had a best friend in 86 and uh, you regurgitated Talk to Me Goose and you can be my wingman anytime. But let's talk about fashion for a second. Ray-Ban Aviators get a 40% boost in sales because of Top Gun. 86 is considered the peak of leather jacket fashion with an average of three out of every five people wearing them. And I'm not talking just about the guys, I'm talking about the girls too, because Kelly McGillis has a very fashionable leather jacket throughout most of, of the film. The white t-shirt is back in style, having not been cool since the days of Steve McQueen. And now let's talk about music because thank you to the Top Gun soundtrack, it is on every single radio station with hits like Danger Zone and Take My Breath Away. And they're still popular today, but let's talk about the renewed popularity for bands like The Righteous Brothers, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Otis Redding becoming popular again amongst the, the young people of 1986. Navy recruitment sees a 500% boost in applicants. Go America, Top Gun, another win there. And Although pro beach volleyball is organized in the 1970s, it doesn't get officially recognized by the International Volleyball Federation until a very popular scene in Top Gun featuring sand volleyball. There you have it. Without Top Gun, 1986 does not get the cultural tsunami amongst fashion, music, our armed services, pro sports, it doesn't happen without Top Gun, and that is that's why '86 was a, such a, a big impact here for for pop culture. And adjusted yeah. for inflation, that volleyball scene, I think three and a half tons of sweat. Well, don't forget the baby oil that Tony <laughs> yes. Scott lathered him up with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know that my co-host Pat, who from our podcast that loves Top Gun, is going to kill me if I don't just stop for a moment and say, "And motorcycle." Oh yeah, the, that's all the I Kawasaki was a. I didn't. I didn't look into that because I thought, you know what, I, I don't want to be talking too long. But yeah, I did have a, a little tidbit that Kawasaki gets a a significant boost in sales as well. Nice, Jason. You've got 1989. Finish out the decade for us. I got three points I want to bring up. Number one, 1989 is the year of the bat. Bat mania swept America like nothing else. And I know all four of you guys were swept up in it as well, right? That was the incredible thing that happened that summer. Yes, Superman 1978 did it first, but Batman 1989 did it bigger and better than ever. You had music, you had t-shirts, you had toys. You still can buy the t-shirt with a bat symbol on the front. That summer, it was all about Batman and Joker. It was incredible. Prince had a number one album. Because of this, Tim Burton became a superstar director, and it set the pace for every single DC or Marvel movie that you see today. We can't get away from these comic book movies, and it's because of the success of Batman 1989. It is a pop culture nuclear bomb. Now then, also that summer, you had 18 sequels. Okay? Now, Good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. 
this is when the movie studios said, let's take what works, give the people what they want, the continuation of characters that we love, still see it today. If they have success with a movie, you're going to get a sequel. So let me just run through this list of 18 sequels. Like I said, some are good, some are not good, but here you go. All 18 of these released in 1989. You ready for this? Here we go. I'm going to start what I think is the worst and I'm going to climb to the best here. Okay. Toxic Avenger part two, American Ninja part three, Eddie and the Cruisers part two, Police Academy part six, Friday the 13th part eight, Halloween part five, Karate Kid part three, Fright Night two, The Fly two, Nightmare on Elm Street five, Fletch Lives, Star Trek five, Ghostbusters two, License to Kill, Back to the Future part two, Christmas Vacation, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and Lethal Weapon Part 2. It was the year of the sequel, and I loved it. Number three, 1989, gave us a movie that I'm going to bet is not any of you guys' top five for that year. However, its pop culture impact is huge, and that is the release of the movie The Little Mermaid that reestablished Disney as a powerhouse entertainment company and gave us like that second golden age of Disney animated movies. My daughter loves it. That movie came out 35 years ago and still today people absolutely love it and it gave us Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and the resurgence of Disney. Like it or not, The Little Mermaid was another pop culture nuclear bomb for 1989. I rest my case. I just I was I was ready to have you say Electric Boogaloo after every one of those part twos. <laughs> All right, our next segment is the wild card. Wild card. Dayton, what have you got for 81? 1981, you get not one, not two, but three quality sword and sorcery movies are released that year and actually mostly all pretty close together. You have Clash of the Titans featuring the final work of stop motion artist Ray Harryhausen. Excalibur gave us the big screen debuts of Gabriel Byrne and Sirian Hines and the movie is just friggin' cool. Dragon Slayer gave us the greatest cinematic dragon of all time. Not only do I think so, but Guillermo del Toro thinks so and George R.R. Martin thinks so. And also the filmmakers that did Reign of Fire thought so because they based their dragons off of that dragon as well. You guys might not be a fan, but I am. The thrash metal band Slayer took their name from the movie Dragon Slayer. Initially, they did call themselves Dragon Slayer. Once their, the music changed, they dropped the dragon and just kept Slayer. Now, these movies kick off what became a pretty much a staple of the 80s, the sword and sorcery genre. We do get many more, but I don't think we actually get three quality ones in the same year, although Def Dave might try to argue that point otherwise. But for me, those three are all solid sword and sorcery films, and we got a lot of really bad ones after the fact. Now, another important big screen debut that impacts movies for years to come, October 15th, 1981 at the Redford Theater in Detroit. The Evil Dead is screened for the first time. This is big because we get both Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell on the screen for the first time. This leads to, of course, two sequels, Evil Dead 2 and The Army of Darkness, my favorite of the trilogy, by the way. Without this movie, we probably don't get Darkman, A Simple Plan for the Love of the Game, and any of the Spider-Man movies starring Tobey Maguire. A couple other notable big screen debuts that affect the 80s. Tom Cruise appears in Endless Love. He also appears and has a bigger part in Taps, where he shares screen time with Sean Penn making his big screen debut. And let's not overlook Denzel Washington in a not-so-great movie, but Carbon Copy. He, of course, would appear in A Soldier's Story in 1984 and his Oscar-winning performance in Glory for 1989. 
those are my few wild cards. So there you go. Awesome. Dave, you got 84. What have you got? So first of all, we started touching on this a little bit, but for 1984 wild card, and maybe this isn't a big deal to the rest of the people here on this show, but I know I have an audience out there. This was the apex year for breakdancing movies, okay? We had Breakin', and then we had Beat Street, which was actually fantastic. And then before the year was over, Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo. So Breakin' and its sequel both came out within the same year. But it's also not just for breakdance movies, but it's an apex year for movies regarding music in general, okay? We had two of the biggest soundtrack-driven monster hits of the 80s that maybe I should have put under pop culture impact with both Footloose and Purple Rain, monster movies, monster albums. In addition to that, the other music-related movies that came out in this year, Footloose, Purple Rain, you had Body Rock, you had Give My Regards to Broadway, you had Cotton Club. This is Spinal Tap and a little movie you may have heard of called Amadeus, which swept all the Oscars the next year. So it's a fantastic year for movies about music. And I have something here that I think even Jason Colvin is going to have to concede to me. And that is 1984 is the is the year for the best sports movie of the decade. Robert Redford in The Natural. Don't even try to change your tune now, Jason. You know The Natural (laughs) is the best sports movie of the decade. So I mentioned earlier, it's a big year for horror, big year for sci-fi and fantasy. This is the main reason that clinches it for me in my mind. This is what closes the deal for 1984. This is why I stand on this hill. And it's the sheer quantity of movies that come out in these genres. So you have the big hitters that we've already named, right? The Terminator, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the very first Nightmare on Elm Street. Those are all huge. Then you also have movies like This is Spinal Tap, The Last Starfighter, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, The Never-Ending Story, Starman, Greystoke the Legend of Tarzan, Runaway with Gene Simmons and Tom Selleck. We have Dreamscape. (laughs) We have 2010. We have Dune. We have Repo Man, V the Final Battle, Firestarter, and I'm gonna, I got two guilty pleasures here. I think you'll forgive me. Sheena and Conan the Destroyer. <laughs> and when it comes to horror, I'm not a big horror guy, but I'm looking at this list and I'm thinking, this is pretty strong. I don't know if there's a year in the 80s stronger in horror than this year when you consider that we have not only Friday the 13th, the final chapter, we have the very first Children of the Corn, we have Chud, we have A Nightmare on Elm Street, and we have Silent Night, Deadly Night. I don't know how, I don't know how you beat that either. So when you, that's a long list. I had to get them all in. I can't believe I haven't gotten any bonus points yet. But <laughs> this, the sheer quantity of the, this, not even counting things like that I like, like Ice Pirates and Brother from Another Planet. I mean, there's the list goes. It's too long for 1984. It just doesn't stop. You didn't even list the greatest ski movie of all time. Hot Dog the movie. <laughs> <laughs> It Shannon Tweed in. and her absolute tweediness. It's a close second to The Natural. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> I am kidding. I'm giving that to Jason. I think they should both lose for those comments about <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, 86. Jeff, Dave, I would ask you to take a look at the abundance of 
awesome horror films that came out in 1986. We might have to sidebar on that. However, John, my wild card is short, sweet, and a little sinister because here's where I go with a little bit of a smear campaign against my <laughs> my fellow opponents here. Here's what it comes down to. Money talks and Oscar walks. Let's talk box office and the best picture winners. We're all physical media guys. You know, we know the importance of, of owning a movie so you can watch it time and time again. Right. I think you're going to see that some of the movies I'm, that I'm about to, to share with you not only are not <laughs> on your, your shelves, they're probably not things that you want to see ever or ever again. 1981, Chariots of Fire wins Best Picture, does $59 million at the box office. Yeah, a bit, a bit of a yawn there on that, on that movie. 1984, as, as Dave did mention earlier, Amadeus does rock the Oscars, does not rock the box office, though, because uh, he does a paltry $51 million. The man died poor, and his box office was also poor. Now, I'm going to skip 86 and jump to 89 here for a second, because at 106 million, we have made a significant jump. People are going to the movies and seeing this one. But how many people want to see Driving Miss Daisy over and over again? And put your hand down, Dayton. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> oh, there's always one. There's always one. Yeah. You know who else loves it? Mammal, because you can find the VHS in the, you know, the cabinet underneath her. I know it's her, not uh, Cobra. Underneath Jeff, her TV. I know it's not Cobra, but come on uh, now. You had, you had your time, sir. You had your time. <laughs> yes. And I and I now, and I was not and I talked about my year. I didn't trash other people's years. Hey, it's a, wow, wild Mama. card, baby. It's a wild targeted. card, baby. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> lastly, about box office. Lastly, 1986. Best picture winner, Platoon, does $138 million. Clear cut winner. I don't care if you love war movies, if you love Charlie Sheen movies, if you just love good movies, you love Platoon. And more than likely, it's going to be on your shelf a lot more often than Chariots of Fire, Amadeus, or Driving Miss Daisy. That is my wild card that I'm playing, John. You probably won't want to hear which of those four movies is on my shelf. Amadeus. I, I, Amadeus is the only one that's on my shelf. But. <laughs> actually, there's actually only John. one of those that's not, and that's Chariots of Fire. The other ones are all on my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, yeah. and, and for the record, for the record, Amadeus is a brilliant film. Oh, yeah. Absolutely love it. And uh, you can see it back there on my shelf right there as well. The the best parts of Chariots of Fire is how, how much of a high-stakes movie it was because they – they go and, and they compete, and, and if they lose, then they got to go back to their high-paying jobs. So that's what really did it for me with Chariots of Fire. <laughs> I will say, and to be fair, I think the best the best moment of Chariots of Fire is the soundtrack that you hear in Nash Lampoon's Vacation. <laughs> and that's the hill I'll die on. <laughs> That was the, I remember my mom, the only time I ever, my, my mom just being absolutely irate when she had to wait on the phone for something was she was calling some kind of customer service line, and this was back in the 80s, and Chariots of Fire was the hold music on the phone, and I just, I remember the only comment, she, she was, I could just see her fuming while she's on the phone, and she just looks over at me as if I'm going to know Chariots of Fire at that point in my life, and she goes, I hate Chariots of Fire now. <laughs> no, I, 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 okay, mom, I don't... <laughs> I don't know what that is, but okay. Jason, you've got 89. Okay, for my wild card, I've got two things I want to play. I've got two jokers, if you will. First thing I'm going to play is that the summer of 1989 was the greatest summer for movies in the 80s. Dave is crossing his arms already. Dave, I've already looked at 1984. August of 84 week, okay? So here you go. Think back to me. Like, I've seen three movies in the, in the movie theater this year. 
this summer. Three. Okay. Now, when we go back and we look at the list, let's just, just in your head say, okay, that's a watchable movie. That's a watchable movie. Some are better than others, but starting May 19th of 1989, we go all the way to August 25th before there is not a new movie that's watchable. Okay. So listen to this. May 19th, Roadhouse comes out. The next week, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The next week, Dead Poets Society. The next week, Star Trek V. The next week, Ghostbusters 2. The next week, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Batman. The next week, Do the Right Thing, Karate Kid, Great Balls of Fire. The next week, Weekend at Bernie's and Lethal Weapon 2. The next week, License to Kill and When Harry Met Sally. The next week, UHF. The next week, Friday the 13th, Part 8, and Turner and Hooch. The next week, Parenthood. The next week, The Abyss and The Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 5. The next week, Uncle Buck. Finally, after Uncle Buck, we get August 25th where there's just crap. But that entire summer, week after week after week, you have watchable, enjoyable movies at the box office. I will concede that that is a murderer's row of summer box office. I'm going to pose to the jury that 1989 is the sexiest movie year. Okay. Now stay with me on this. Are you going to talk about driving Miss Daisy? (laughs) (laughs) Here's my question to you guys. Can the judge object if you start with that? No, I'm not starting with that. Okay, good, good. This is my, this is what I'm saying here. Okay. Stay with me. We all enjoy when our lady wears lingerie. When she dresses up nice, she looks pretty. She's got her sexy underwear on. It's all a part of the experience. And the anticipation, I would say, is at least as much fun as the actual experience. So think back to a time with me in early 1989. This is what we knew was going to happen that year. We knew we had 18 sequels coming. We knew we had a Stephen King movie. We knew we had a Star Trek movie. We knew we had Indiana Jones coming back. We had Ghostbusters. We had Batman. We had the return of Marty McFly and Freddy Krueger and James Bond and Jason Voorhees. We knew we had a great Christmas movie coming with Clark and the Griswolds. We knew all these movies were coming. We had two of the greatest baseball movies coming at at us. And just the anticipation of what was coming down the pipe that year in 1989 was so much fun back then, the anticipation of Batman, Indy, and Bond all in the same summer just made it that much sweeter. And that's where I'm going to stop. So so I do have to ask, was No Holds Barred the week she had a headache? (laughs) You don't like No Holds Barred? No, I love No Holds Barred. I was going to mention that in a few minutes. I had that one. That was in my pocket. (laughs) Mine too. who, who, Who doesn't love seeing Hulk Hogan say, Dookie. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get to our cinematic sins here in justice, and we're all going to be on the table here. Mm -hmm. So that's the wild card. Now, as Jason said, we are going to get to the cinematic sins. Cinematic sins. Basically, what these are is these are the movies that are so bad that they are going to be weighing your year down. So each of the guys is going to present bad movies from the year. And and these are the ones that are basically this is the cement shoes that have been given to you to sink you to the bottom of the lake. These are your cinematic sins from each year. So 1981, 
So it, it's easy to go straight to the list of Razzie winners, right? Because, well, a, every year is going to have a worst movie. But here's the thing about the Razzies of 1981. 1981 was the year that was so bad, they had to invent the Razzies. Okay, <laughs> this is where it started. Okay, so Mommy Dearest sweeps all the categories, takes home five Razzies, and at the end of the decade, when they're giving out decade full awards, like the worst movie of the entire decade, the Raspberry goes to Mommy Dearest. So 1981 just owns that title yeah you you know that quote wire hangers oh, <laughs> and i i just contend that the razzies are stupid because there's a lot of years there's actually good movies on their list so the razzies are stupid those are people that have nothing better to do so i don't care it rejects the razzies i reject oh. the razzies i'm sorry <laughs> jeff what do you got for 81 one of the greatest heroes in american literature gets his his chance <laughs> Yes. To hit the big screen in a way we are not ready for. You have a beautiful woman playing the, the leading lady. So how do you explain Tarzan the Ape Man to me? Because it is so bad. Edgar Rice Burrow was rolling in his grave when this one came out. Dayton, you may hate the Razzies, but they sure love this film because it got nominated for six of them. And Bo Derek herself did take home the gold or the golden raspberry, whatever they call it. Just try to sit through this movie. It is. It's, it's terrible. Bad. Terrible film. Tarzan, the ape man, Jason, I, I concede my, my remaining time to you. Thank you. I have that one as well. That was on my list. Uh, nudity has not been that boring since Showgirls. So <laughs> my cinematic sin for 1981, I am going to go with Galaxy of Terror. We have, that's a Roger Corman movie. It's where James Cameron was actually discovered, was given the Piranha 2 job because he was able to get worms to wiggle by electrocuting them. But this movie stars Robert Englund of Nightmare on Elm Street and Aaron Moran, who played Cupcake on Happy Days. But the worst sin in Galaxy of Terror is you have a full-on rape scene where a woman gets raped by a worm, a giant worm creature. It's unwatchable. I tried to watch it one time just so I could see where James Cameron got his beginning because I'm a huge James Cameron fan. It was the worst piece of crap I've ever seen in my life. So... Galaxy of Terror, 1981. Nobody's ever seen that. One. I can tell. No, Nobody's that's, ever seen no, that. I, 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 I've seen it and it is everything that you just mentioned. <laughs> Actually, I, I'm going off what the, the vintage video podcast said about it because yeah, everything they said, I'm just like, I'm never watching this. <laughs> I'm just never. <laughs> so let's see. Now we got 1984. So Dayton, why don't you give us the cinema sin from 1984? All right. Well, I had a quite a few, but I'm just going to go with the one that's probably the most offensive of all the ones I chose. Blame it on Rio. Michael Caine's having an affair with an underage girl. I'm just saying that's it. That's inappropriate. It's disgusting. And it's wrong. It's not even funny. So blame it on Rio is a terrible, it has a meta score of 22. Okay. 22. There you go. That's mine. Can I, can I add to that Dayton? Because that was right my, ahead. that was my, my surprise pick that I was ready to drop because the whole movie is sad because you have this Michael Caine who's middle-aged and he's having this affair with his best friend's daughter. daughter. The whole thing is inappropriate. Here's the thing. Michelle Johnson was 17 years old when she filmed this movie. She had to get special permission from her parents and a judge to be in this movie. If she was 22, it would be creepy. She's 17. Yep. 
Sorry. Thank you for help. Yeah, Thank that, you for I'm proving sorry, my I, point I, even more. Thank you. That's a cinematic <laughs> scene. Not, I have no defense. That's a cinematic <laughs> scene. I was say, if you try to defend that, I'm just like, dude, you're done. Oh. <laughs> Jeff, what have you got? Less controversial, but let's talk about the superstar that Bill Murray was in 1984. This is the guy. He's a Ghostbuster. Stripes. Caddyshack, right? Along comes a movie in 1984 that is so terrible. It is such a, it is such a dumpster fire that he questions whether or not he should even be acting after it and doesn't act again until like 1988 when he does Scrooged. I'm talking about a film called The Razor's Edge. Try to get through it is what I would, uh, uh, I would tell you. Oh, didn't bad. he write that? He wrote part of it and it was like a passion project for him. And at Dan Aykroyd's suggestion, he held out of Ghostbusters. He used the idea of getting Razor's Edge made as leverage. Like, if you want me in Ghostbusters, you got to let me do Razor's Edge first. <laughs> you like that one, Dave? I like it because the scene where that uh, he's it's like eulogizing a friend of his in the movie who had died. Bill Murray wrote that scene. And in his mind, he was speaking to John Belushi. I think that's kind of neat. Also, it was a non-comedic role. And we know Bill Murray proved eventually to be a fantastic dramatic actor. And this is kind of like the first step in that direction. So, you know, yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All is right, it my it's, turn? It's your turn. Okay. I'm backing up against the ropes. Here I come to pounce on Dave with Supergirl. Supergirl. <laughs> Supergirl is the worst piece of crap DC movie, it's worse than Superman 4, Quest for Peace. It's not even a question. You have a witch. You have Clark Kent's cousin who can magically change her hair color. She just changes clothes through voodoo or something. There's terrible acting. It did so poorly, it caused the Superman franchise to fall into the canon group's hands. It's not even close. This movie is a giant wart on the nose of 1984. Supergirl. <laughs> Dave is Dave is owning his defeat on that one. <laughs> there, there's there's no defending this movie. I do know that it's partly 1981's fault because whoa. <laughs> once again, because of Faye Dunaway, I object. Oh, because of Faye Dunaway, another raspberry for her. You know, it was helped her get the worst actress of the decade, I believe. So I think this movie is largely the legacy of 1981. How's that? I'll, I'll go. Objection, deflecting. <laughs> I, right? <laughs> Jeff and I both left Rhinestone off, off the board too. So Actually, yeah. that was on my list too. <laughs> I was I was kind of surprised Jeff didn't go with Bolero since he was kind of, kind of they, yeah. he might go like a, do a Bo Derek, you know, thing. <laughs> no. I just, I don't understand why you guys can't get on board with the Omega Hedron. I mean, it's just one of the most amazing <laughs> pieces of movie prop history. And I'm, I'm so sad they never did make that sequel where she could change her hair color. And then the sequel, she could change the color of the Great Wall of China just by looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> we are to 86. Dayton, what have you got for 86? I'm going to stay on the offensive idea and I'm going with Soul Man. Okay. <laughs> C. Thomas Howell in blackface. That's all I need to say. Okay. 33 Metascore, racist as hell. There you go. Soul Man. We had somebody come working on our air conditioning at our house and the guy came downstairs and he could see all my podcasting stuff I have down here. And he's the same guy that's been coming and working on our house for years. And this is the first time I was ever home when he was here working on stuff. 
And so he was asking me about the podcast, everything else, and, and he's like, you know what? You know what's one of the worst movies I've ever seen? Soul Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, understood. No, 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 you know, not to defend that at all, but isn't this where C. Thomas Howell met Ray Don Chong? It is. Yes. And it is like, indeed. Right? And they got yeah, married, I mean, right? Yeah. She, yeah, they were married. I mean, she didn't seem to have too big of a problem, so, but does not play well at all these days for sure. Just, this was, <laughs> I believe, the apex of Ronald Reagan Jr.'s acting career. <laughs> I yes. remember that. He was. Thank you, Def Dave. That helps it by helps uh, even I was more. Say, Thank that you. probably helps Dayton's charge. <laughs> <laughs> I am not gonna defend that film. It was <laughs> probably not a not a good choice for for Tommy Howe back then. Obviously did not age well. And it's one that I know he and we all should just forget. So Dave, what have you got? So look, 86 is packed with some really bad movies. So bad that the the Razzie for worst picture of the year had to be shared between two movies. And there's only two more chances to mention movies right now between Jason and myself. So I feel like I should mention one of those incredibly like they could not decide which one was worse. They just gave the Razzie to both of them. But I am going to go a different way because I discovered the existence of a movie preparing for this podcast that I'd never heard of before. And it sounds so awful that I have to mention it here. But it's the kind of awful that I think is probably going to interest all of you in trying to go track it down and watch it. It's called No Retreat, No Surrender. Has anybody heard? I've of seen it? it. I've seen this, it. Heard of it. This is a movie. Tell, this is, I haven't seen it. But it says that this guy, he wants to, like, avenge the death of his father. So he learns martial arts, karate, kung fu, from the ghost of Bruce Lee. <laughs> That's true. That's the it premise. Is. Who yeah. else do you want to learn from? <laughs> <laughs> oh, is are you actually going to defend this, Jeff? Come on. <laughs> hey, Jean-Claude Van Damme is the bad guy. Yeah. What? Van Damme is a villain? <laughs> and that doesn't help it either. So don't even go there. <laughs> So I'm going to trust Jason to somehow mention the other two if he's oh going gosh. there, but I'm leaving it on a platter for him. What oh, do you he, have? He gets one. Uh, <laughs> you have left me with a plethora of bad movies where I can only choose one here. I'm looking at a list that includes Nomads, which Jeff and I have. Oh, already- wait a minute. <laughs> this, is a, this is a cheap tactic. You're, you can't no, just no, list no, no. I'm five. Just, you get one. I'm just pal. talking out loud while I make my decision here. <laughs> objection. Wait, I will. I will only consider the last one he says. Nomads. We Jeff and I have been on record talking about how horrible that movie is. True. We have also been on record talking about how bad Under the Cherry Moon starring Prince is. Yeah, that one is bad. But I have to go with the star of star bad movies by a man that we all respect and adore, Mr. George Lucas. He came out with a movie so horrible, I can barely form the words to say the title of this movie. Howard the Duck. (laughs) Oof. Put well. that chain around your neck and try to swim, Jeff. <laughs> well, my my response to that that cheap shot answer, <laughs> that, that cheap shot statement, if you will. Look, here's the deal: is Nomad's bad? Yeah, but without it, I quote Jason Colvin when I say, "Without it, there is no Predator, there is no Die Hard." Think about that for a second. And while you're thinking about that, think about this. <laughs> is under the cherry moon bad? Well, of course it is, but 
it's still about a global superstar prince i mean the guy could do no wrong even if he was doing it under a cherry moon and as far as as far as howard the duck goes is it is it bad yeah but it's it's so bad it's fun and i think when you go to the store you'll find a 4k steelbook on the shelves for howard the duck to celebrate its anniversary, you won't find Rhinestone and you won't find Tarzan. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> but, but hey, you will find Howard the Duck. And you know what? I'm not ashamed to, to admit it's it's on the shelf back there. So, hey, do you have yeah, a copy like of a Shanghai book. Surprise back there with your Howard the Duck? Or? How about <laughs> Troll? How about Troll? That one? Okay, so not counting like the old Captain America serials, isn't it the first Marvel like feature film release? It is. It is. And it is. It is. You know, thank you, Def Dave. It is a... It is a Marvel superhero. It's a film about a Marvel superhero. So it's got that going for it. It's also the same movie that we saw Duck get aroused by Leah Thompson. I don't care who you are or what you are. (laughs) I don't care who you are or what you are. (laughs) Leah Thompson will arouse you, my friend. Among our podcast hosts, we did that one. It was one of our first years we were doing the podcast. We did that one. And it's one of the only times one of the guys got up and actually walked out. As we were recording, <laughs> and I don't know if you if you guys have seen the old Three Stooges episode where they I think it hypnotized I think it is, and anytime somebody says Niagara Falls, they kind of turn murderous. Anytime I just say the phrase "duck boobs," yeah, to quote Forrest Gump, that's all we have to say about that. <laughs> eighty nine. Let's let's rip into eighty nine here, Dayton. You get us started. So this particular movie has no meta score on IMDb, but it's. Score from the people is a 1.8. I am referring to going overboard from Adam Sandler. Ew, this thing is unwatchable. I'd rather have a case of diarrhea than sit through this movie again. <laughs> it's terrible. I have terrible. never seen that movie. I've never, I, yep. Don't. Yeah. I will not defend. I would literally, I'd rather shave my head than watch that movie again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just say it. Okay. It. Dave. Okay, I was going to say no holds barred, but it already got <laughs> mentioned. I was going to say going overboard, but Dayton took it. But I did find one incredibly horrible sounding movie that is probably in the realm of craptastic, and you're all, all probably all going to want to find it and watch it. I've never seen it, but this sounds so terrible that I almost feel bad for completely burying Jason with this. Okay. <laughs> So the name of this movie is Oversexed Rug Suckers from Mars. I saw that listed too. (laughs) Okay, this is a sci-fi movie where it talks about aliens returned to Earth after having started the human race millennia ago. And the first human they see when they come back is this like really gross, dirty, homeless guy. And they conclude from that that all of humanity is very, very dirty. And they, they obviously come to the logical conclusion that the best thing they can do to make this planet better is to crossbreed humans with vacuum cleaners. You know what? what? I, I never realized that this movie's a prequel to Prometheus. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and the way they start this crossbreeding is this homeless guy accidentally drinks some alien pee. And this causes him to fall in love with the first vacuum cleaner that he sees. And it creates this hybrid race of rug suckers. It's oversexed rug suckers from Mars from 1989. 
What in what? What what is what? <laughs> see my see my I earlier make that up. Yeah, see my earlier comment about people being coked out of their minds in the eighties. <laughs> All right. Bring it. Jeff, finish this off. Well, look, I am not going to let you off the hook, Jason, with some obscure or little known <laughs> film like the last two. I'm going to channel D Graves, your co-host here. I'm going to offer up a movie that should have been a hit and was so bad, was such a turd. It, it, it's a crime against film. OK, so let's let's talk about a couple great things that you can throw into a movie. How about a hit song from Michael Damien? Rock on. We were all singing it. How about a beautiful girl like Meredith Salinger? And at the height of their popularity, the Corys. Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, their their movies were fun. When they got together, they had a great time. So I don't know what the hell happened when they did Dream a Little Dream. Wow, what a what a dumb movie. And again, this is one of those tropes where it's the body swap. So a little Freaky Friday action. And they can't even do that right. This movie is terrible. It's it's a crime. It should not be this bad. It's it's like 90 minutes of Corey Feldman in, in, in his most coked up Michael Jackson impersonator phase. And he just just craps all over this movie the, the whole time doing it. it. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. This was when I started worrying about Corey Feldman. Like he had a good run in the eighties, right? He was in the Burbs, right? He was like He was in the was Burbs like, in eighty nine. In eighty nine. And then and then all of a sudden it's like, oh and he never really stopped this phase after starting right here. Oh yeah, it's a bad movie. So from the lowest of the low, now we're gonna go to the highest of the high. This is this is one of your last chances to make the case for your year. This is the pinnacle. This is the top five movies. Top five movies. 1981. Okay, so I couldn't figure out how to break this down. So I just went ahead and looked at June into July, and you had The Great Muppet Caper, Dragon Slayer, For Your Eyes Only, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Stripes all came out within a, basically a few weeks of each other. And to me, and I saw all of those in the theater, except for Stripes, of course, because I was too too young. A side note, I've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark 20 times in the theater, 20 times, because it's that freaking good. And if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't get one in 84 and you wouldn't get a sequel in 89. So anyway, those and some people consider The Great Muppet Caper to be the best of the Muppet movies. It's definitely a favorite of mine. Dragon Slayer is probably my favorite sword and sorcery film of all time. And For Your Eyes Only is my favorite Bond movie. These are these are all favorites and four of the five I saw in the theater that summer. So that's why I chose those five. Top five movies, 1984. Dave, 1984. Okay, honorable mentions, Red Dawn and This Is Spinal Tap. I've never quit watching Red Dawn, awesome movie. Number five, Ghostbusters. Number four, The Terminator. Number three, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. Two things I like about that real quick. I love that the vast majority of it is in real time. And we see it tie into the same cinematic universe as Gunga Den. So I think that's pretty cool. Number two, this is a movie I hadn't seen in over 30 years. I just saw it a couple years ago. It brought back all the memory, all the nostalgia. I had forgotten of just how great this movie is. It goes all almost to the top of my list. The Karate Kid. I absolutely love this movie. It's amazing. But at the number one spot, considering who I was at 13 years old in 1984, 
and how it just had me hook, line, and sinker on the edge of my seat. I was along for the ride. I have to put it number one, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Wow. Really? I Man. love Star Trek Three. I like it more than four, that's for sure. Really? No Beverly Hills Cop? Nope. They didn't make my top five. Okay. Top five movies, 1986. If it pleases the court, I have prepared a written statement I'd like to read. <laughs> um, and if you happen to notice 20 film titles from 1986 in this statement, I assure you it is merely coincidental. Oh, yeah, right. I'll begin. <laughs> Honorable John Reed, to quote Lieutenant Pete Mitchell, call sign Maverick, I can see it's dangerous for you. After all, you've been given a fine mess during this one crazy summer. Listen to our testimony and choose the best year for movies in the 80s. But John, you're the elite, the best of the best. You, sir, are a top gun. Therefore, when you examine the years 81, 84, and 89, the only question is, if I may quote Ellen J. Ripley, you're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. John, these ruthless people I'm debating against <laughs> can troll you day and night for nine and a half weeks. But it doesn't take a witch board to point to yes when I ask if 1986 is the best year. Forgive my gung-ho attitude about this topic, but these other guys should be running scared through the labyrinth of average films their collective years offer. Because 86 is, in fact, the most rad, and only someone with a short circuit would think otherwise. <laughs> it's true my cinematic sins can cause heartburn, but I don't believe I'm out of bounds when I say it takes true wisdom to appreciate that even bad movies become cult classics over time. It would be something wild if you chose one of the years suggested by the other three amigos <laughs> ultimately as the highlander himself connor mcleod of the clan mcleod not clan of the cave bear tells us there can be only one john i know you'll make the right choice i believe that you will stand by me my top five are top gun aliens platoon ferris bueller's day off and stand by me thank you that was excellent i'm giving it up to you on that that well Top shelf, sir. Oh my gosh! I just, I just appreciate the fact that most of the movies you mentioned are not very good, so that helped a lot. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> hey, as Dalton says in '89's Roadhouse, opinions vary. Guys, don't don't. How am I supposed hey, to follow don't, that up? I, I don't want you guys to argue with each other. I want you guys to be nice until it's time to not be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Top five movies, 1989. My top five, I wouldn't say are the best five movies, but these are the movies that best represent the excellence of 1989. Am I splitting hairs? Maybe, but here's my list. I'm going to start with the greatest romantic comedy of the 80s. At number five, I'm giving you When Harry Met Sally. Number four, I'm going with the greatest Christmas movie of the 1980s with National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Number three, I'm giving you one of the great sequels of the 80s. We get part two, actually an improvement, in my opinion, from part one. We get Riggs and Murtaugh, Lethal Weapon 2, the summer of 1989. That's my number three. Number two overall, I give you 
Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I am not a person who says it's better than Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think that is the best movie of the 1980s. But I know opinions vary, and I know people hold this movie in very high regard. Maybe the best of the three Indiana Jones movies. And then finally, I give you the one movie, the stamp of 1989, Batman. We still quote Jack Nicholson's Joker. You guys probably have shirts with the bat signal on the on the front of it. You probably had toys. We had the soundtrack. It owned the summer of 1989. So I'm stamping this whole thing off with Batman. I had the collector cards from the movie. I had the entire set. <laughs> yeah. And I have the soundtrack sitting behind me. <laughs> so those are the top five movies from each of our years before... I make a decision, and good Lord, you guys have made it really, really difficult to make a decision here. We are going to do, in this next piece, very, very quickly, I want each of you to vote for, if your year didn't exist, and you had to vote for one of the other years, who gets your vote? So basically, in your mind, which of these years comes number two? So I was trying to figure out how many movies I own from each of the other years and it's 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 really close so that that didn't really help my thought process you know what i think in general i'm thinking i'm gonna go with 89 he's, he's right it's when harry met sally is probably the greatest romantic comedy of the 80s i saw it in the theater loved it from the first time and yeah and i agree lethal open 2 is better than the original and yeah i'm a big fan of indiana jones and last crusade is fantastic so i, I think 89 wins out just a little bit David, what do you got? This was tough because it came down to a couple different years. 89, of course, being the most recent year from the 80s, it's easy for me to remember that one. It was also the summer that I, I graduated high school in June of 89, right there with Batman, Star Trek V, Indiana Jones all coming out that, that month. I remember that summer very, very well. I was out of school, I was hanging with friends on top of the world. I can't believe Jason never even mentioned UHF in this entire episode. There's a big sentimental gravity pull to 1989 for all of those reasons. But there's another year that had what I consider to not only be the best movie of the decade, it's my best movie of all time. And I don't say that lightly because it's always neck and neck with 1938's Adventures of Robin Hood, which is also just right there. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark. And on the strength of that movie, and on the strength of the rest of June of 81, and on the strength of Excalibur, John Borman, my favorite fantasy film, my favorite King Arthur adaptation, I have to go with 1981. And that is in spite of the fact that in Superman 2, he rips off like the cellophane layer of his S symbol <laughs> and throws it across the fortress of solitude to ensnare the bad guys. I'm going with 81. Jeff. Well, for me, it was always about two years specifically. And in my heart of hearts, I had to, I had to think about it. And I came down to the year that almost was our limited miniseries. And that's 1984. For all the reasons I started my lifelong crush for Phoebe Cates when I saw Gremlins. It is absolutely got, in my opinion, the greatest war movie ever made, Red Dawn. And, uh, you know, what can, what can you say? You know, if, if you're looking for a hero, the Karate Kid, we're talking about the amazing redemption story of a young John Lawrence who has everything set up for his senior yeah. year. This punk, LaRusso, <laughs> comes to town and just causes chaos, causes havoc. And even in the end, just like in Rocky, he maybe he loses his title. He doesn't win. But he lets he lets the audience know that he's he's going to be OK. You know, he hands the trophy over to to the cheater. 
and says you're so you know 84 had it had its heroes it had its it had its adorable girls that you could you could crush on and it had its awesome war movies you know so for me it's it's 1984 jason who does number two work for okay this is really interesting okay so dayton you chose 89 dave you chose 81 jeff you chose 84 i'm going with 86 <laughs> okay <laughs> And so here's the deal. So June of 1981, I feel like is the best month for movies in the, the entire 80s. Just absolute killer after absolute killer and formidable movies to me. 1984, I would say there's more like sevens and eights throughout the entire movie. But when I looked at my personal top five movies from 1986 and the impact that they had on me as a person. So Aliens, the James Cameron movie, it created a lifelong James Cameron fan in me. 10, 10 out of 10. Top Gun made me want to be a fighter pilot with every other red-blooded American boy in the entire country. 10 out of 10. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is one of the funniest movies in the 1980s. I absolutely love it. Quoted all the time. Stand By Me, a Stephen King movie with dramatic impact like that. And then kind of off the beaten path, but... What I think is the greatest horror movie of the entire decade, and you have The Fly, the David Cronenberg movie, The Fly, where Jeff Goldblum slowly becomes this horrific monster. I mean, I saw that in the theater, scared the crap out of me, grossed me out, but broke my heart too. So I'm going with 1986. I can't argue with that top five. Well, it looks like it's time to close now. So thank you all for coming <laughs> to this episode. And- <laughs> I just, I want to state for the record that I hate every single one of you <laughs> for, for all choosing a different year. Cause I'm like, huh, well, if three of them fall back on the one that I think I'm leaning towards, well then eh, that's fine. But yeah, you leaving me out the dry here. So I guess it's, it's, it's my turn now to kind of make a decision based on the evidence that you all have presented. Final judgment. I'm going to go through each of the years just really, really quickly. 81, all the stuff that you guys have said. Raiders is an amazing movie. I tie so many of these things to experiences I had watching some of these movies with my dad. Raiders, I remember watching that with my dad, and then I remember taking my son to go see it when they brought it back out in the theaters just down the street, actually, from the hospice that my dad passed away in. The movie theater was showing it one more time, and there was even a guy that came with prop replicas from the movie, and we stayed there. My son is the most I think he'd ever talked to another human being. He was asking questions about the props and, and everything else. It was just, it was awesome. Stupid, fun movies like Cannonball Run. American Werewolf in London, one of my favorite movies. And Clash of the Titans was one of my favorite movies as a kid. I had all the toys. Even stupid little TV movies like This House Possessed was one that I somehow watched over and over again as a kid. One that we did on our show, and I was blown away by this. I absolutely loved it. And the premise seemed so simple, I didn't think I would love it, was My Dinner with Andre. I absolutely loved that movie when we watched that. And, and I think the rest of my co-hosts on our show, it just they were amazed too. They're like, it's two guys having dinner. How good is this going to be? And we watched it and we're like, this was actually an awesome movie. I, I actually love this movie. So 81 is just, it's got so much stuff to love from 81. 84, 2010. I remember watching that as a kid and it was one of the first movies where I remember the moment that you started to see, spoiler alert, the monoliths. You start to see some of those monoliths show up in like the great spot of Jupiter. And and I remember getting just goosebumps as a kid. I'm like, I loved astronomy at the time and this movie was messing with my astronomy. 
And it was just, it was bone chilling. So I remember that. And I mean, this is all the stuff that my uncle used to take me to when I was inappropriately too young to go to see some of these movies. You know, when I saw Nightmare on Elm Street and Terminator, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, 16 Candles, Never Ending Story, Muppets Take Manhattan, Spinal Tap, Amadeus. I've already said Amadeus is is one of my favorites too. My dad, when he did have his stroke, you couldn't tell when he was joking. He couldn't show emotion on his face anymore after he had had a stroke. And at one point they were wheeling him down through the hallway in the wheelchair and he starts turning to the other people that are sitting off to the side working puzzles and doing other things. And he just goes, mediocrities, mediocrities everywhere. I am your patron saint. And I go, okay. So you, <laughs> you, you have not lost your sense of humor. 86, Little Shop of Horrors, Three Amigos, Hoosiers. Crocodile Dundee, The Fly, Transformers, the movie, maybe one of the first times I cried in a movie as a kid, Stand By Me, Aliens, Labyrinth. I can't even tell you, between my siblings and myself, the number of times we quote Labyrinth on a daily basis. Big Trouble in Little China. I'm so shocked nobody wanted to go the creep factor and choose Poltergeist 2 and tell us about how God is in his holy temple. Highlander, American Tale, Platoon, and then 89. I mean, Christmas Vacation. These are, A lot of the movies in here are just the ones that are on regular rotation. Just Back to the Future 2 was probably one of the first movies I took my son to go see in the theater. Little Mermaid, Parenthood, When Harry Met Sally, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was always a big one. Dead Poet Society was the movie that probably most inspired me to become a teacher. Last Crusade, Roadhouse, The Burbs. My son playing baseball, I mean, there's not a game where, at least in my own head, if I don't say it out loud, at some point, I'm going to say the phrase, just a bit outside. And then, I don't think anybody mentioned, for 89, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Well, I've taken all of your information, and I've heard all of your arguments over the course of this episode, and I am going to say that, I'm not going to cop out, but I am going to say, God, all these years are just amazing. There's a reason why these are the four that we ended up having for this episode, because you really honestly can't go wrong. I'm going to have to go with, and I think some of the, the pop culture argument for this year, and I think just, I think it's one of the things that the person who had this year, it was one of your reasons for why this year was so pivotal, and I think that's going to be the same that I'm going to have to go with in my decision. And it's probably the year where I own most of the movies that are on this list. It's the year that probably inspired most of my love of movies, my love of literature, the the types of genres I enjoy, all that other stuff. I am going to have to go with the one that started a whole bunch of these franchises. I'm going to have to go with 1984. I got to go with 84. Like I said before, that was one of the reasons we started our show was we were sitting around arguing this point and we said, God, that's just, look at everything that got started that year. Yes, I love, and I'm a person that loves sequels too, even bad sequels. I, I love having the sequels. I love having all that all that fan service of bringing back those sequels and just getting more of what I enjoy. But 84, just, man, that, that kicked off so many things that became so huge. I love all of you. I love all the years. I think I got to go with 84. So. That's totally reasonable. Makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> I, I kind of thought you'd say that. <laughs> there'll be no live with there'll be no live with Dave now. <laughs> and thankfully this is not just my decision because the listeners are going to weigh on this too. So so I, we've heard all the evidence. I've said what I think it is. I've I've said 1984, but we want the listeners to weigh on in this as well. Jason, how do you want how do you want listeners to to let you know what their vote is? We're going to put it out on Facebook. We're going to put it out on Twitter. We'll share it for everybody to weigh in. 
on what they think is the best year of the 1980s. And if you say 1987, you're out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but John, thank you very much for moderating. Guys, thank you so much for being here. I had a great time, and that was a, a great discussion. Enjoyed it. Fantastic yep. time. Thank you very much. I absolutely, absolutely love these uh, these big multi-show collaborations we do sometimes, and looking forward to the next one already. This was a, this was a blast. Thanks so much.